presents High Tech Sunday. On today's episode of High Tech Sunday, our hosts, Dr. Mark Vaughn and Lingo Dean, sit down with breast and ovarian cancer research scientist, Coletta Orr, for a conversation on the many ways to be a scientist. Up first is Corning Incorporated's Manager of Technical Talent Pipelining, Dr. Mark Vaughn. Next is Career Communication Group's Senior Technology Editor, Lingo Dean. Finally, our esteemed guest, Coletta Orr. Armed with years of research and the desire to understand and fight cancer, she is passionate about bringing awareness to women about these diseases. Along with being a trained cancer research scientist, Orr is the CEO of Coletta Orr and Associates, where she helps women get the resources and education needed early to begin life-saving conversations with their physicians. Orr is also the author of Cancer Doesn't Always Win, a comprehensive guide to beating breast and ovarian cancer, as well as the visionary of the Pink and Teal Conference. And without further delay, High Tech Sunday, featuring Dr. Mark Vaughn and Lango Dean. Thank you so much, Brandon. And let me add my welcome to everyone who has joined us for today's High Tech Sunday broadcast. It's certainly a pleasure to have you carve out the time each week to join us for what we are really excited about being these high tech conversations as we have the engagement with folks from all over what I'm calling the STEMosphere. And that is certainly the case today with Coletta Orr. We're going to be talking about many ways to be a scientist. I'm telling you, it's going to just blow out of the water the idea that scientists, engineers, STEMists come in uh, just one shape or size. And so we're really looking forward to the conversation. But first, welcome, Coletta. How are you? Good afternoon. Thank you so much. I'm doing well. Awesome. Well, as I said, really excited about having you with us today. And so going to jump right in and, and try to get to know you a bit and to introduce you more to our listeners today. So what we do in this first segment is kind of have a conversation that tries to get at what makes you you. If you were to answer that question, what is Coletta's background? What is her passion? What is her mission? How would you respond? Okay, uh, my mission and my background is to educate like my community, my community about breast and ovarian cancer. That's my mission. Um, I don't know if I'm speaking a little too fast, but I I lost my grandmother to ovarian cancer um, and her mother to breast cancer. And that's how I developed my passion because they didn't understand these diseases. They didn't understand. And I feel that if they would have had more knowledge, more information about these diseases, they would have been able to manage their health differently. They probably would have survived longer. So that's my passion is to educate my community so they can understand these diseases. Wow. And and so that couldn't be a more timely conversation for us to be tackling. And when you think about the personal investment, as you were sharing some of your family experience and how that informed the decision to go into biology, to pursue public health and cancer research, when did you know that you were going to be in the STEM area? 
Well, when my grandmother, after she passed away from ovarian cancer, I think the words that she said to me, um, why did all this have to happen to me? And mm. she said, why? I wanted to figure out why. I didn't know anything about ovarian cancer. What is ovarian cancer? So at that point, I knew I wanted to study. Um, I had to go in science. I had to understand, you know, what these diseases were. I, I went to Georgetown to um, got in a lab, worked with a principal investigator. Started out with breast cancer. I really was more interested in ovarian cancer because I was trying to find my grandmother's why. But breast cancer took me to ovarian cancer. It just, it, they, they just tied together. When I looked at breast cancer, it brought me directly to ovarian cancer. So that's how I got, that's how I knew I was going to go into STEM because I had to figure out what this disease was, why this happened to her. And so as you um, were speaking, I say to the guests, often I look for the headlines and the, the headline that really jumped out at me as you were speaking about your grandmother and how it is that in a way uh, you are dedicating uh, this life's work of yours to her and to her mother and, and the family. The headline was the why. You wanted to find out her why. And that's what led you down this path. The path that you're on certainly is one that could be all-consuming, of course, and we don't like to talk about cancer. We don't like to talk about illness. And so can you speak to how it is that you stay motivated uh, as you're dealing with these really life and death kinds of issues? I think I stay motivated because I'm on the front end of cancer. You understand what I'm saying? So I'm actually, I'm at the bench doing the research. I'm trying to block cancers from growing. I'm trying to stop it from metastasizing. So I'm not really dealing with patients on that end of it. So I'm actually dealing with the cells, the like the very primary stages of cancer on a molecular level. So I think that's you know, that's how it, I guess it doesn't, it's not that daunting for me, but I have been at the bench for over 15 years. And then I decided to pursue public health because I wanted to do more in the community. So I understand the theory behind breast and ovarian cancer. I get all of that, but I need to be able to learn something that I can take to my community for them to understand, to better understand. So that's why I decided to branch off into public health. Understood. And so as you are the scientist on the bench, you're trying to stop the disease before it actually becomes that enemy that's attacking someone that then needs to have treatments and cures. And so uh, I think that the, the idea of there being someone, to, the way that you put it, on the front line is absolutely mission critical. As you think about the experiences that you've had with your own family and then this need to carry the message to the community. It sounds to me, uh, and, and this is Sunday, High Tech Sunday, like a ministry, uh, your mission. Uh, so can you say a little bit about how your own spirituality has informed this journey of yours? Yes, I can. I feel like you know, as being a scientist, I think like even like majoring in science, it has taken me in so many different directions, you know, into the community, into people's lives that I never even imagined. You know, you start out at, a, at the bench being very isolated. You know, now I have, you know, Coletta Orton Associates where I deal, I actually deal with clients. I actually deal with breast cancer, ovarian cancer survivors. 
And what my organization do, we offer them hope. You know, we offer them hope because we have to show them that it is life after cancer. We offer them direction after chemotherapy. After you went through chemotherapy, after you have a clean bill of health, now what? Because life is not the same. You aren't, it's not the same anymore. You have to create a new normal. So, so for me, you offer hope. And hope, you know, intertwines with faith. So you have to have hope and faith when you're dealing with these type of topics. And at the bottom line, I'm, I'm reflecting on the title of your book, Cancer Doesn't Always Win. Uh, and so you, you really gave us kind of like a pitch there. Uh, and it really is powerful to think about how it is that you are going about providing hope to people using your word in a situation where sometimes uh, you might feel hopeless. But, but let me back up and talk about this idea of the many ways to be a scientist. There are a lot, lot of paths that you can take when you become a scientist, as you know, but you, even in these few minutes of conversing, uh, have clearly indicated that you've traveled many pathways. So can you Speak to us a little bit about some of the hats that you wear as a scientist and, and how that has really helped you achieve this mission you're on. Okay, um, well, first and foremost, I, I'm just a scientist, I'm at the bench. I do you know, basic research science, research. I, that's number one. Um, secondly, I'm a consultant. Like I can, I have my own consulting business, Collateral and Associates, where I work with hospitals to develop programs for patients once they go through the treatment, once they went through all the, you know, chemotherapy and all this good stuff, then what? I'm like the bridge after that. So to help them create a new normal, help them get back to some, some sort of normalcy. So that's the consulting side. Then I'm also a scientific um, writer. For Merck Pharmaceuticals. I actually write about the, the research that's being done. Um, you kind of, it's kind of like somewhat like when you go to the pharmacist and you get a prescription and you see the bag where it has all these scientific terms and you flip it over and it's in layman's terms that you can, you know, see what is in the medication, what the medication does. That's what I do. I translate what's being done in the lab into layman's terms. So patients, clients, that are non-scientists can understand the, the scientific language. I do that. I'm also an author. And I'm also a like, community liaison for a pharmaceutical company that, you know, when we come out with new drugs, there's something they want to tap into, um, like an urban community, uh, minorities, they will want me to tap into some of the heavy hitters in the community that can reach out to our um, citizens to get them more involved in clinical trials and, you know, let them know that it's safe because, you know, they, sometimes they don't feel that they want no parts of it. You know, it's a trust issue. So I work on that side of um, science as well. So I do a whole lot in science, not just at the bench. You got that right. I was making a list of uh, the different hats that you wear. So author, community liaison, writer, scientist, my word, educator. When you say you break it down and make all of this accessible, uh, so you've got that educator hat on. Why is it important to you? Because it's certainly not everyone does what you do. Some people, I'm on the bench, and that's all that, that I really am uh, interested in. But, but you've got this whole list 
holistic ecosystem uh, that you touch. Why is that so important to you to be that versatile when it comes to your work? I think when I, you know, a lot of times um, when people find out that you're a scientist, especially when you're a minority, a lot of times they they want you to come. I don't care if it's at the churches or civic um, organizations in the community to be able to speak to the community. People reach out to me all the time. And they would reach out to me and I would probably show up with this big PowerPoint presentation like I do when I'm at Georgetown. And when I look at the audience and they look so lost, they like, like, what is she talking about? And I, and I was like, wait a minute, this is not what they want. This is not what the community needs. They want to know, people want to know how they can live. How can I reduce the risk of developing breast and ovarian cancer? Or if they develop these diseases, how can I live? That's what they want to know. They don't want to know about all the molecular genetic and epidemiology stats. They're not interested. So that's when I, I wanted to give the community what they can use. They could not use any of that information. So that's what really turned the light bulb on for me. I mean, that is so critically important. And I think that you probably are witness to how different the response has been as you began to take that approach to what it is that you've been called upon to do in service to the community. It was interesting to learn in the prep for our conversation that your work actually has taken you overseas uh, as you have been working with organizations all over the world. Can you talk a little bit about uh, some of those experiences and, and maybe tell us if there's one in particular that's been your favorite or one that stands out in particular? Yeah, I can for sure. I think um, probably the most memorable overseas trip that I had to take um, for work was to France. Um, I did some work with American Hospital of Paris and I couldn't believe it, but they had like a huge demand of, for the services that my consulting business was offering. You would think that Paris had all these things in place and the hospitals for um, the patients once they are done with treatment, you know, what's next? It's always a what's next. You have to kind of guide them back into their lives pre-cancer you know so they they didn't have this so a friend of mine that did a lot of um, international uh, business was telling me plugged me in with um, a physician in france and we had you know had been talking for a few months and they wanted to bring me over to develop a, a program for their hospital so i developed a program for that hospital and it it went really well they still using that same model to this day and the one thing I think I liked about it, in France, they're really big on leisure and work-life balance. <laughs> I noticed that like most people, the work week is like 25 to 35 hours a week. The rest is leisure. And I thought that was like, wow, this is pretty cool. I like this. <laughs> so and I was able to take my family as well. I was able to take my son and my husband. So that was a good opportunity for me. And so I was just actually going to ask you to talk to us about any differences that you experienced or observed as you were overseas working compared to how things are here domestically. Uh, and so you touched on that work-life integration being a bit different uh, than we kind of think of it here in the United States. Were there any other differences that uh, stood out for you as you were working overseas compared to how you uh, have experienced things here on the state side? You know, it's somewhat similar. It would just be like maybe uh, cultural differences. 
Like, because when I was there, I had to have someone to speak for me. Like, I had someone to, to go around with me and my family. So I would have somebody that, like a translator, to be able to, you know, so that made it a little bit, you know, a little bit tricky, but it was just, the culture was a little bit different. I think the living, the living arrangements a little bit different. Like the hotels in um, France, it's like, if you don't take get up and take a shower at a certain time, like, I don't know if it's like a, a country thing, the hot water is going at a certain time. So it's like, you got to get up early, take a shower because they don't have hot water after a certain time. I don't know why, but that's the way it was. So it was like some cultural differences and stuff. It's just like the hotels are different there than they are here. They are nice, but it's just different. Understood. Uh, so let me ask you to coach us a little bit, because I already mentioned as we were listening to how it is that you have this ecosystem that you touch and you've got like a hat rack full of hats that you are wearing. Can you give us uh, a few tips that might help us understand how to juggle uh, so many different responsibilities. I mean, scientist, entrepreneur, community uh, liaison, educator. What what are some of the tips that you have picked up on that allow you to keep all of those balls that you're juggling in the air and continue to deliver? I think the biggest thing for me, I have to have a routine. I create a routine. Believe it or not, like every night I have to do like a to-do list like the night before. So I know what I have to tackle the following day. Just like today, you know, last night, I knew I had to do this show today. You know, I prepped for it last night in advance. So when the day comes, <laughs> the day can run, you know, smoothly. So I usually create a routine for the, for the next day. Any meetings, any me emails I need to respond to, I do that. I try to set clear objectives, you know, what goals I want to uh, create even down to my family goals. Even if, if my son has a soccer or whatever, I have to carve that out in my day. I don't, I don't book anything around when it's family time or dinner time. So, and, and also I hire good people, you know, you know, you have solid, you know, people that works with you, you know, trustworthy, responsible. That's pretty much what helped me keep the ball rolling. That last one is, Huge. You said hire good people, trustworthy, responsible, reliable. I think we sometimes miss that when we are thinking about how it is that we need to consistently be able to show up. So thank you for uh, schooling us a little bit on how we can juggle effectively. We heard in the opening, the introduction, that you're an author. You shared that, and we were excited to hear about your book, Cancer Doesn't Always Win. I referenced that a few minutes ago. So we don't want you to give away too many spoilers because we definitely want to encourage everyone listening to go and grab this for themselves and for the loved ones in their networks. But can you tell us a little bit about some of the key takeaways that you would want a reader to walk away with once they've read your book? Absolutely. I would definitely want readers to know and to understand that anybody can develop breast cancer for sure. If you have any type of breast tissue, you can develop breast cancer, men or women. There's no such thing as, you know, you're healthy, you exercise, you fit, 
it's impossible for you to develop breast cancer, even if you don't have anyone in your family that ever had breast cancer. Just like I mentioned, men and women can develop it. Even like a man, a man has a, about as much mammary gland tissue as a adolescent little girl. So even, like I said, even men, if you have any type of mammary tissue, you can develop breast cancer. And I also, it's important for people to know that it's no, you can't eliminate the risk of developing breast cancer. It's nothing you can do to say, I'll do X, Y, and Z, so now I'll never develop breast cancer. That's impossible. All we can do is reduce the risk for developing breast cancer. We can do things to reduce the risk down to a very minimum, but as long as you have breast tissue, you can always develop the disease. And also, it's good to know your family history. That's very important. That's, that's the key to prevention. If you know your family history, if you know any history of cancer from your mom, grandmother, your aunts on your mom's side, your dad's side, if you can share that information with your primary care physician and they can have a landscape of your, your family medical history, they can manage your health in a different way. Because for me personally, I have breast and ovarian cancer in my family. I have heart disease, strokes, all those things. So when I have all this information in my chart for my primary care physician to look at, he manages my health in a different way. He can give me a mammogram. I can get a mammogram more often than the average person because I have a family history of breast cancer. So those things are important to know. Those are, those are key things important to know. When you read my book, you would definitely get all that information to tell you why it's important, um, what steps to take, how to gather that information, and how to have that conversation with your primary care physician. This is such good stuff, so important. And certainly before we let you go, we're going to make sure we let folks know how they can get the book, but wanted to reiterate some of the messages that you just highlighted for us. Firstly, and, and I think that we forget this, that breast cancer is not just a female issue uh, that men and women can be stricken with breast cancer. And you said that you, in my words, you said you, you can't eat it away, you can't exercise it away, uh, you can't wish it away, but you can reduce your risk. And it's important, critically important to know your family history huge, huge insight. And I'm really excited about folks learning more uh, as they pick up Cancer Doesn't Always Win. You mentioned also in the pre-interview that oftentimes people want to know how to live. And I think you touched on this a little bit already, but what do you mean by that? They want to know how to live. How can people learn to live, especially a fulfilling life after cancer? What I mean by people want to live, they want to know how to live. If they've already been diagnosed with breast cancer and they went through chemotherapy, breast or ovarian cancer, went through chemotherapy, went through all everything, and they are now cancer-free, they always have a fear of this cancer having a reoccurrence at some point in their life, two years, five years, 10 years down the road. So they live with this fear of having a reoccurrence. So they want to know how to live. They, they like I always say, they don't want to hear about all the molecular genetics. They want to know what can I do to live. And when you're on the other side of cancer, you know, cancer is an abstract idea until 
you or someone you love develops a disease such as that. So once you're on the other side of cancer, you look at life a whole different way, a whole different way. And I urge women to always, of course, not sounding like cliche, but you have to exercise. Don't stop getting a mammogram because you're cancer free. You, you still have to keep all your, your yearly appointments, all your scans. You, you have to do all those things. If you're on any type of medication or any type of regimen, you keep those things going. Don't drop the ball because you're cancer free. You, you never know if, you know, something could reoccur and you want to be in front of it so you can tackle it and get it eradicated, you know, as quickly as possible if something, if something like that were to occur. So that's what I mean by they want to know how they can live how they have to be proactive with their health, even on the other side of cancer, even more so. Very powerful. And I think that those reminders, again, uh, are sometimes lost on us uh, because of the fact that we think that oftentimes cancer is the showstopper. It's the deal ender. And your work is helping folks remember that it isn't the case. Uh, and so thank you for, again, those insights. I'm going to hand off to my co-host, Lango Dean, for the next segment, and uh, I'll be back for more conversation. But for now, hey, Lango, how are you? Hello, Dr. Vaughn. It took me a little while to unmute myself there. <laughs> Sorry about that. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm really learning a lot in this conversation with Coletta Orr. So I'm happy to learn more about this career and pipeline segment that you two are about to talk about. You're listening to High Tech Sunday, featuring Dr. Mark Vaughn, Lango Dean, and our special guest, breast and ovarian cancer research scientist, Coletta Orr. The deadline for 2021 Women of Color STEM Conference nominations is quickly approaching. Stay tuned for a message from our sponsor. It's time to nominate your heroes. Get your nominations in for the Women of Color STEM Conference. The Women of Color STEM Conference is an annual conference focused on empowering women of color in the STEM field. The 26th annual conference will be held on October 7th through the 9th, 2021. Please visit www.ccgheroes.com for more details on our nomination process. All peer-reviewed nominations are due on April 30th, 2021. All Outstanding Achievement Award nominations are due on May 15th, 2021. Again, please visit www.ccgheroes.com for more details on our nomination process. Again, the window for nominations is closing. So please visit www.ccgheroes.com for more information. Now, back to the show. Wonderful. Well, welcome to the show, Ms. Oye. It's a real pleasure to uh, have you on the show. I think you're the second guest we've had on the show 
who's a cancer researcher. The first one, Dr. Green, she's a medical physicist. And, and like you, she had the unfortunate history of cancer, you know, nursing family with, with cancer. Um, her aunt had breast cancer, I think, and then shortly after that, her uncle as well. So there was this motivation, and she went on to Alabama A&M, I think it was, and she did physics, and then from there, you know, the, the path that she followed took her to where she is now, and she's working on cancer re research and trying to cure cancer. Can you tell us, after the experience with your your grandmother, or was it your, your, your aunt who had ovarian cancer, breast cancer, after those two experiences, what made you decide that you wanted to be a cancer researcher? And how did you begin? How did you start that journey of becoming a cancer researcher? I uh, stumbled upon this journey, like I said, because my grandmother was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and her mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. So they had that you know, genetic link. But I started in undergrad, I did internships. I wanted to learn as much as I could. You know, I, I took all the courses I needed to take. And when, when the summer months came, I went to Meharry Medical School and did an internship at Meharry one summer. Um, I went to um, Medical University of South Carolina one summer and did an internship because I wanted my hands to be trained once I left undergrad. Then a lot of times when you go into graduate school, they want to know if your hands are trained. Can you do these assays? Can you actually do the research, the technical side of it? So I had started really in undergrad, actually trying, you know, getting my hands trained for to actually do cancer research. At the beginning of the conversation, you talked about, you know, that you dealt with cells on a molecular level. Um, you talked about being a bench scientist, I think, for about 15 years. Um, and then you talked also about people not wanting so much to get into the information about molecular and genetic information. They, they just want to know how to get better. But it, it's important also that we have people who can take care of people who have cancer, can do the research, can can invest make that personal investment because it's such a it's a disease that affects every part of the body and there's so many cancer clusters all over america so how would you encourage young people to get into cancer research to get to study biology to study public health so that they can make a difference like you are making now i would urge students of course to definitely work hard in undergrad and secondly, they should reach out. They should research scientists all from all over. Any, any minority scientists that maybe look like them, reach out. Scientists are always eager when students reach out and they, they love it. I mean, even when I was in undergrad, I reached out. I was urged to reach out to principal investigators from all over. That's how I got my internship. Um, did my research at uh, Georgetown, as well as the National Cancer Institute. I reached out to these principal investigators on my own, and I just let them know that I had an interest in the research they were doing in their lab. They, believe it or not, these are very busy people, but they are very, I, I don't want to say flattered, but they, they like when people are interested in the work they're doing. And when they find out you are interested in you know, a career in science, they are eager to help. I mean, I've always been met with, resources, if, even if they didn't have a spot available in their lab, 
they would point me in the direction where someone was looking for a student that had trained hands like myself. So definitely reach out, you know, reach out, do your research, whatever you have an interest in, you know, if it's, even if it's cancer research, it could be, um, I have a good friend at uh, the University of Maryland. He's actually a, a neuroscientist. He actually takes students in all the time. Students reach out to him. And he's flattered by the fact that someone is interested in the work that he's doing and he brings students in all the time. So that's a good way to be able to get into research. Just reach out. They'll, they'll be glad to take you in. You talk about what principal investigators do. Uh, and when you were working as a PI, do you have a story that you can share? And the reason I ask that is because I watched this movie with Oprah in it, the one about Henrietta Lacks and herself. And the principal investigators in that film, they were just so awesome. So do you have a story like that that you can share? Well, I, I was never a principal investigator myself. I was a senior research scientist. So usually principal investigator, they run, they have their own lab and a whole staff. So I never uh, held that position, but just an experience um, in the lab. I think my biggest aha moment for me when I was in the lab, when I was, um, at Georgetown, I was working with some breast cancer cells. And I was working with the cells. And every time I would develop these cells up, they would always kind of like divide off into a different type of cell. They would, they would turn into something else. And I, and I was trying to follow genetic makeup of these cells. Long story short, they, they're always connected to ovarian cancer. That's how I was able to branch into ovarian cancer. And I was like, okay, it's a genetic link. And, you know, and I was like all excited in the lab. And I actually went to my principal investigator. He ran over to my microscope. He was like, yes, I see it. You know, so I was able to find that for myself. And that, I was able to, to, to find that, develop that. And, and I was able to see the genetic link. And that made me stop and think like, okay, my mom had ovarian cancer. Her mother had, you know, breast cancer. Here's the link. I'm looking at it right under the microscope. So for me, that was my biggest aha moment. Wow, that's a great story. You, you talked about going to HBCUs, uh, speaking to students that attend historically black colleges and uh, uh, universities and other minority institutions. What are some of your talking points when you visit these schools? And, and why do students need to know that these, these issues that are so critical right now? Well, I think a lot of times uh, students are sometimes afraid to approach um, careers in science or degrees in, you know, STEM. Uh, They're they afraid of the science, they're afraid of the math, and I, I just be very transparent with them, you know. You know, I didn't come from a family, you know, with a long line of highly educated parents, grandparents, you know. I came from the South, you know, I grew up on a dirt road, you know. I had to take, you know, when I was in um, undergrad, I had to take Cal 2 twice, you know. I had to have it to, you know, graduate. You know, it wasn't like a cakewalk for me. I had to put the work in because, you know, you have to have at least a B or above in any of your major classes. You know, I got a C in, in Cal 2 and I had to take it again, but I wasn't, and I let them know, you know, you don't change your major. If you are driven to do something, you don't just upheaval your whole major for one class or, two, or just because you hit a bump in the road. You know, you have to fight through it. You know, I had to get a tutor. I had to, you know, up all night and, you know, and, and all that good stuff. But, you know, I made it through and here I am. I also tell them about the importance of pursuing a career in science for their community. Because a lot of times when you look at breast cancer, you, you know, 
African-American and Hispanic community, we get diagnosed the least. White women get diagnosed the most, but we die the most. So why is that? The news, uh, what they're saying in scientific journals, they are saying because of so social e economic um, issues like, oh, um, you don't have health care or it's finances or you don't have the education. But that's not true. You know, I have a colleague of mine that actually was a breast cancer surgeon at Howard University. She was diagnosed with breast cancer. It wasn't because she didn't have money. It wasn't because she wasn't educated. It wasn't because she didn't have health care. So we have other issues that needs to be look, taken a closer look at. Besides, they just write it off as minorities because we don't have money. Or, and, and that is the case in some instances. But that's not like the whole meat and potatoes. That's not like 50% of the causes of African-American women um, dying from breast cancer more. We need to take a closer look and we need more minority students, you know, coming in, getting trained and taking a closer look at these diseases so we can um, save our community. The world of science can be quite intimidating sometimes. And, you know, you've got this image. We talked about it in a couple of shows ago where people have this image of the scientists as being male, Caucasian white middle class you know middle middle-minded that sort of thing so what advice would you give to young minorities who want to go into this field what would be the best advice you would give to them things that you learned as a bench scientist for 15 years things that you have learned as a scientific writer um, things that you have learned as an author that writes you know books about especially subject like cancer, what's the best advice for them along their journey? I think the best advice is to definitely have a, a mentor. It's, I think now, more so than it was when I came through, like in 2002, it's more scientists that look like me now. You know, when I came through, when I was at Georgetown, when I was in the program, it was me and one other Hispanic young lady in the program. And it was very, very difficult. It was difficult because I think we learn differently. They communicate with us differently. I, I felt that we, we, we didn't have the social support that we may have needed, especially coming from HBCU. We, we definitely had, you know, a lot of social support from there. And um, she actually graduated from Hampton University. So she had like a lot of social support. So when we went to Georgetown, it was like, they just threw you in the, in the ocean. You just have to swim. You have to figure it out. Like if, if I worked on an assay and I didn't understand it, I would have to read a scientific journal, get in contact with whoever the author was, <laughs> ask them what were their technique, because that's what they expect you to do. They were, they're not going to tell you. They're not going to like pull your hand. And I think you need like a mentor. And it's more of us now. It's more African-American men and women in the field of scientists. I mean, I have several friends that are scientists and, and it wasn't that way when I was coming through. So I think they have more, they have, they have more people that look like them they can reach out to for, for guidance. Thank you for that. Um, this is just a little question before I turn it back to Dr. Vaughn. Do you have any professional associations that you would recommend? Because you talk about the increased number of minority scientists, but I'm sure that students who need to find them need to know where to go. So which professional associations would you recommend? I'm a part of the American Cancer Association. I'm a part of that association. You can definitely find, you know, many minorities there. Um, I'm also American Public Health Association. 
But what I recommend, you go directly to the medical schools because you can get a direct email address. You can, you can contact them directly. That's what I would recommend. If they was actually looking for a mentor, just find out what area they're, they're interested in. Whatever area you're interested in working in, may it be breast, lung cancer, brain cancer, kidney, prostate, find out, go to the medical schools, look at the, their programs, and it'll tell you what each, what each uh, physician, what they specialize in, and reach out to them. And if they can't help you, they definitely can direct you. Because that, that's how it was for me. Even when I reached out to some institutions, they were like, oh, I have a friend. They have a spot in their lab. They will be glad to have you. You know, have your resume ready. Let them know what your interests are. They love it. They love when people are interested in their work. Fantastic. Wonderful. Thank you so very much. Um, it's been really helpful and informative conversation. At this point, I'm going to throw it back to Dr. Vaughn. Dr. Vaughn? Thanks so much, Lango. Really, really great conversation today. And such important information, both from the career and pipeline perspective, as well as uh, just the stories from the field have been amazing and so informative. So again, uh, really having a great time with Coletta Orr today. And I mentioned in the prior segment that I wanted to be sure that we let folks know, reminded folks, about how they can find your book. Uh, also, if there are ways that folks can connect with you, follow you on social media, can you let us know that information? So where can we find uh, your book and how is it that folks can follow you on social media and even learn more about Coletta Orr and Associates? Absolutely. Um, you definitely can um, purchase my book from Barnes and Nobles. Um, you can purchase it from Target, Walmart, Books a Million, Amazon, ColettaOrd.com, and I think I think that's about it. <laughs> I think that's all the places you can definitely get the book. And to, if you want to get in contact with me, you definitely can reach me through my website. It's ColettaOrd.com. Um, I'm, I'm also on Twitter. It's ColettaOrd, all together, C-O-L-L-E-T-T-A-O-R-R as well as Instagram is Coletta Orr. And on Facebook, um, I have a Facebook page called Cancer Doesn't Always Win. So, and that's on Facebook. You can find me there as well. Awesome, awesome. And we absolutely, again, encourage folks to check out this work. It is so mission critical. It is a topic that has touched all of us in one way or another. Uh, and so we are really grateful to have this connection. Before we wrap up, we always are encouraged and inspired by our guests as we invite them to share a word of encouragement or uh, inspiration with the listeners. Uh, and so would you mind taking a moment to give us some uh, final word of encouragement as we uh, wrap up today's conversation? Absolutely. I definitely would have a word definitely for like students who are considering a career in STEM just to work hard and stay humble and once you meet, get across that threshold and meet your dreams, just never forget to pay it forward because it's so important. Once you learn all these new things and you can share it with your community, it's always going to be someone coming behind you that needs a lift, that needs a hand. Just always pay it forward. 
what an important message for us to be left with. Paying it forward is definitely something that we cannot reiterate enough. Coletta Orr, we are so thankful to have had the opportunity to spend time with you today. Thank you for reminding us that there are many different ways to be a scientist and also engaging us on this important conversation about public health and how it is that we can all be better practitioners in that sector. Absolutely, thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. On behalf of uh, Career Communications Group, the whole team here at High Tech Sunday, it has been a delight, and uh, we're going to hand it back off to Brandon Newby to see us out. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of High Tech Sunday. Career Communication Group's High Tech Sunday looks at professional development and technology through the lens of spiritual philosophies. In a time when digital information is more critical than ever, this weekly program is produced by and for CCG's community of alumni and professionals in science, technology, engineering, and math fields. The community runs from national thought leaders to aspiring students, and this weekly series aims to bring a concentrated discussion around technological advancements and achievements based on universal moral principles. The one-hour podcast will be streamed every Sunday. The podcast can be accessed through the Bay of Facebook page, Women of Color Facebook page, and CCG YouTube page, in addition to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Please join us next time. Running from October 7th through the 9th, 2021, don't miss out on the upcoming Women of Color STEM Conference. Since 1995, the Women of Color STEM Conference has been the premier forum of choice for recognizing the significant contributions by women in STEM fields. General registration opens on April 30th, 2021. Don't miss out on the opportunity to meet and learn from executives who are committed to the advancement of women in the workplace. Again, general registration opens on April 30th, 2021. We hope to see you there. Please visit www.womenofcolor.net for more information.